This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, August 8th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Task forces led by the federal government mean local authorities effectively turning over their police to federal agencies. And in doing so, cops deputized as federal agents follow a different set of rules. And that could mean less accountability to local authority. Simone Weichelbaum is a staff writer at the Marshall Project, who covers federal task forces. Patrick Giacomo is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. He represents James King in the case of Brownback v. King, a case currently slated to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court next term. Simone, I want to start with you. When the feds come into a locality and they have some, we'll say it's a legitimate uh, crime issue that they're they're dealing with, um, what is that relationship like between the feds and local cops? And to what extent are local cops, what extent do they become feds? So what usually happens is twofold. So first you would have like a short-term partnership, which you usually see with the U.S. Marshals Task Force, where sometimes they'll come in for 90 days, six months, deputize local police officers assigned to that task force, and usually they go after fugitives. What's really interesting about this is that the U.S. Marshals and the FBI can go after local fugitives. So people often ask, like, hey, you know, why are the Marshals kicking down the door of a guy wanted, you know, breaking into my neighbor's house? Well, sometimes police departments and some argue they don't really have much going on and they have this task force. They may assign, you know, the house break in, the serial carjacker to the U.S. Marshals, which will come down, kick down your door. And oftentimes in our reporting, we found kill you without much consequence. And then the other term of the other part of task forces, which are actually really important, I would like to know, are counterterrorism. Like the FBI counterterrorism task force works in many big cities, including where I live in New York City, long-term partnerships, not going away anytime soon. They work on long-term investigations. And we also see this with white collar crime, cyber crime. So there's sort of a difference that we need to understand. The violence I found and the police accountability issues I found in my reporting tend to revolve around more street enforcement, going after fugitive, kicking down doors, looking for that drug dealer, looking for the gunman, you know, who held up three CVSs. There are some problems which we can get into about like racial profiling when you're looking at more counterterrorism task forces. So let's sort of, I put them in two camps. Okay. So uh, to you, Patrick, you have a case that uh, deals specifically with this. This is King v. Brownback. Brownback versus King. Brownback versus King, my, I stand corrected. This is a, a case of, of a young man who was approached by members of a task force. They thought he was someone else and uh, beat him. Um, and you could look up pictures uh, on the internet of Mr. King, and uh, it, it's really uh, gut wrenching to to see what uh, these officers did to him. What uh, what are the problems that task forces present in? this case. And we should mention that this case will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in its next term. Yes. So, uh, I mean, just to circle back to what Simone said, this is exactly what Simone is describing. And so you had a fugitive task force that was operating in West Michigan that was a joint uh, venture between the FBI and the Grand Rapids Police Department and several other local agencies. And the way these task forces are supposed to operate is they are supposed to only have federal criteria for, for instance, if a fugitive is at risk of interstate flight. And there's this big, long thing called a memorandum of understanding that outlines all of the special rules that are supposed to apply. 
Um, but in reality, they do what Simone said, which is they essentially just become local police. And whenever the local police department kicks a case to them, they just go do it. And so in this case, um, they were working under a Michigan warrant that arose from a guy breaking into his boss's apartment and stealing a box of empty soda cans and a couple of liquor, liquor bottles. And the local police department had gone to this guy's last known address, hadn't found him, and then had just kicked this over to the fugitive task force. And so in this case, there was an FBI agent and a local police detective who were part of this task force looking for this guy with an incredibly broad description of a white guy between 5'10 and 6'3 wearing glasses. And other than that, um, James King was just an innocent college student who did fall into that incredibly broad uh, description, although he didn't look anything like the photograph that the officers had. And so they pretty much brusquely approached him without identifying themselves. They were in plain clothes, wearing baseball caps and jeans, driving a black SUV and quickly put him up against a car and took his wallet out of his pocket, at which point he thought he was being mugged and tried to run away. And these officers choked and beat him as onlookers screamed and called police. And James was calling uh, for them to call police. And then when police showed up, uh, they actually arrested James much to his surprise, because as it turned out, these two guys were actually cops working as one of these task forces. And so the immediate problem that you see um, from a constitutional accountability standpoint is that it's incredibly difficult to hold officers accountable anyway, but it's even more difficult when they're members of a fugitive task force or any other federal task force, because there are so many shells in that shell game that it makes it very difficult for you as someone who's just been injured or had your rights violated to know exactly how to pursue uh, vindicating those rights because you don't know if these guys are feds, you don't know if they're state officers, what do you do if they're both? And a lot of times what the government will do is just say, no matter what you do, you picked the wrong thing. You sued under too many theories or you didn't sue under enough theories or you sued under the wrong theories and they'll throw your case out. Simone, uh, when these kinds of events happen, uh, like they did to Mr. King in Michigan, um, how do local politicians, even local police respond, uh, local prosecutors even respond when they learn that uh, this kind of violation of rights is just not going to be dealt with in the way that they normally would? So I wanted to piggyback on something Patrick had said about um, the memorandums of understanding or memorandums of agreement, which are basically contracts which in my 2019 investigative piece um, through FOIA and public records requests, I was able to get copies of. So number one, when you read the contract, like, you know, we read our phone bill, what it says is that the local police department, the cops on those task forces will still follow the policy of the local police department. This is how it gets screwed up as Patrick was talking about. If there's a fatal incident or any type of incident of excessive force, right? Maybe that cop did violate policy, let's say, for not wearing his body camera. But wait a minute, he's deputized as a federal agent. So it doesn't matter if he's not following the policy of like the Atlanta Police Department, which was the subject of my last story. He is now a federal officer who is required not to wear a body camera. And in some after my story came out, they did a pilot program allowing some cities to wear body cameras, which Atlanta decided not to do. But anyway, so that's the first issue. It doesn't really matter what the MOU says because you're still a federal officer, right? Right. Secondly, which I find extremely surprising, is cities sign away their rights for gadgets and gizmos. Oh, look, we can get new guns and cool new gadgets and cameras and all the stuff, robots that uh, the gadgets are out of control, basically. But they get all these gadgets and gizmos. They sign away their rights. And then there's an incident and they're like, oh, no, you know, we want to investigate what happened. So what I found in my reporting is, number one, 
and which Patrick can explain the TUI doctrine, which is a Supreme Court case, which basically says that if a state official wants to investigate someone who works for the federal government, the U.S. Attorney's Office has to get involved and basically greenlight that investigation. So if I'm a local prosecutor, I go, hey, now this local cop who's now a deputized federal agent who shot and killed the college student, I'm curious about his records or whatever documents I want. Usually he's a local prosecutor. I subpoena the police department. I get my documents. Can I subpoena now, let's say the U.S. Marshals or the FBI and Patrick could talk to this? No, you can't. Not if you're a local official. And for some reason, I find shocking. Um, The reason why I pitched a follow-up story is Larry Krasner, of all people, who's his prosecutor in Philadelphia, was going in the media and actually wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, like, if they set foot in Philadelphia, do something wrong, I'm going to prosecute them. And I was like, and I emailed his office for comment and they didn't answer my question. How can you prosecute them? Like, what law are you understanding that, you know, maybe I don't understand? And they never answered my question. And Patrick could talk to this more. But I find it extremely infuriating and misleading the public, especially in what's going on after Portland and this confusion about what Trump really is expanding. It's not really expanding Homeland Security agents. It's expanding existing task forces. And I don't I think it's a dishonorable to the public for people like Larry Krasner to go there and say, hey, I'm going to prosecute you because I'm in a liberal city, when really they don't have authority to do it. Right, Patrick? (laughs) (laughs) Your story here uh, that was uh, published at the end of July, as more federal agents enter American cities, local leaders can't keep them in line. The subhead critics say mayors should be wary as the Justice Department expands law enforcement task forces. Uh, One paragraph from uh, this story you wrote, President Donald J. Trump's new plan called Operation Legend adds manpower to some of these existing teams. The expansion, which began earlier this month, that's July, and was announced last week, uh, is named after a four-year-old boy killed by a stray bullet in Kansas City, Missouri, where the surge began. So, Patrick, uh, I've asked this question to uh, Pat Eddington and Walter Olson of the Cato Institute and others. If the local officials, you know, learn later and only seem to care after the fact, after there's some horrible event that harms one of their uh, citizens, uh, and it's been been done under the auspices of federal law enforcement. If I'm a governor or a state lawmaker, and I know there are some state lawmakers who listen to this program, uh, what should I do? There, if if there's no legitimate way for uh, prosecutors to take up a case against feds and essentially these local uh, police departments have the ability to sign away their ability to to uh, uh, enforce some uh, state law against uh, federal activity, what should state lawmakers and governors be doing? I, th- I think the most proactive thing that a local or state official can do is is look forward instead of backwards. So once something has gone wrong, it's usually too late because of all the things we've already discussed. And it's very, very difficult for state level officials to hold federal officials, whether they're actual federal officials or sort of these um, these U.S. marshals that are deputized from local officers who are oftentimes still working and being paid by local agencies. It's very difficult to hold them accountable after the fact. And so what local and state officials should be doing is not entering into these agreements to begin with or being very careful about the agreements they enter into and what sort of restrictions or what sort of penalties are attached to them. 
And from a state level, you could have um, state legislation that would prohibit or restrict local agencies from entering into these sort of task force agreements without some set of criteria or some sort of oversight. Um, but even then, I'm, I, I, if, for, for several of the reasons that Simone pointed out earlier, um, there's a lot to be afraid of, even if you have a good agreement that says there will be all these me- all these mechanisms of accountability built into the system. And if something goes wrong, um, these will be the sort of punishments that are applied. There's really nothing that can be done to enforce those rules. And so in, in the King case, for instance, this fugitive task force, one of the requirements for them even opening investigations is that there's some sort of federal claim or pending complaint that the local U.S. attorney's office has has started. And that was not the case here at all. And there's really nothing you can do as the person who's, whose rights have been violated to say they should have followed their own rules. And short of the FBI itself saying, tisk, 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 we're going to hold the local FBI agent accountable for not following the rules, they basically have zero accountability. All right, uh, Simone, uh, when you were talking about the crimes uh, for which these task forces are activated, a lot of these don't seem like they have anything to do with something that the federal government ought to be involved in. Is there uh, a case to be made then for dramatically narrowing the range of crimes for which uh, task forces uh, or local officials may engage with task forces? Well, that would take an act of Congress. And number one, even if um, state officials put state legislation out, sort of narrowing the scope of what local cops could do on on these things, they're still um, overruled by the feds, which is what played out with the body camera issue, right? Like even if cities decided, hey, we really want our cops to do this, the feds pushed back and said, we can't have like city X and Y wearing body cameras and city Z not wearing body cameras. We need one uniform policy. The federal government no matter if it's FBI, U.S. Marshals, or DHS, in the case of Federal Task Force, they're one animal, right? You can't have one policy for one agency or one set of law enforcement officers and another policy for law enforcement Z. So that's one issue. The second issue, Congress is who authorized the marshals to allow them to pick up local warrants. So unless the Congress changes that rule, and good luck with that, or DOJ and DHS, again, top echelon of federal government coming together to saying, hey, let's narrow the scope of our work, which again, will never happen. So based on former federal officials I spoke to in Washington, even if you have DOJ on the same page, then you have to get DHS involved. And that's really hard to make them agree at something. The only case people came to me is like, okay, we got agreement on this was expanding um, when uh, federal officers and task force agents can't profile. So under um, Eric Holder, under the Obama administration, Instead of saying, hey, there's a ban on racial profiling, they were able to expand that to a ban on profiling based on national origin, religion, um, gender, and other things that are very typical things you can't do in the workplace here in America, right? But that's the most they could do as far as consensus. So I think what people need to understand, it's so hard to reform federal law enforcement because, one, you more or less need Congress approval. If you don't have Congress, two, you need DOJ and DHS working in together to fix these problems. And it's very rare that they agree on something to a point of curtailing their own power. This is what we're talking about, curtailing the power of federal law enforcement. And no, states and cities cannot do that. Okay, Patrick, uh, 
looks like I struck out with that idea. Um, so to the extent that that uh, governors and state lawmakers can do something, uh, you know, before we started recording, you indicated that state uh, authorities should essentially wash their hands of uh, involvement with federal police. Yeah. So to, to underscore Simone's point, the the only thing that states and local um municipalities can actually do that will have a real impact is say our officers will not be part of these task forces and prohibit their officers from joining these task forces or saying if they do, then they they have to be relieved of their duties under state law. Um, and I, I think if states and localities do that, then that could potentially be a position of leverage going forward for how they might be able to in- increase some sort of federal reforms. But if it, until that happens, there's nothing else they can do except to withhold their manpower from these task forces. When is your case being heard? So all the briefing will be submitted in September. And at that point, the Supreme Court will give us a date for oral argument. Um, so sometime this fall or early um, in 2021. Simone Weichelbaum is a staff writer at the Marshall Project. Patrick Jacmo is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.